You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. As we all know, this is the week of Thanksgiving. And in, in many ways, it's a great holiday. I don't want to disparage it all here today. I say that in uh, preparation for what I'm going to say, but I want to be clear that, you know, it's a great holiday, enjoying a great meal with family, giving thanks, gathering with your friends and family, and being thankful for our many, many blessings. I think that's obviously something we want to affirm, we want to participate in, yeah? And yet I think it's equally important for us to keep in mind this time of year, how this holiday is received by especially indigenous folks and how it's part of a, in general, the way that Americans communicate about the holiday, remember the history of of its formation and all of that, and how it's part of a kind of whitewashed history that's been created to sustain, in many ways, a romanticized version of American history. The myth is that friendly Indians, friendly indigenous people welcomed pilgrims to America. And then, you know, these indigenous folks taught them, taught these English settlers, you know, how to live in this new place. And they sat down to dinner with them and then just just disappeared, it seems. The, the myth is that they handed off America to white people so that white folk can create a civilized nation here you know, focused on liberty and Christianity and capitalism. That's the myth. It's about Native people conceding to colonialism. It's bloodless and in many ways an expression of the ideology of American exceptionalism. One of the more glaring inaccuracies of this myth is that the arrival of the Mayflower was the first contact that Europeans or even English folk had with the native inhabitants of this continent. It was not first contact. The Wampanoags, which were the primary tribe the first English settlers contacted, they had already had a century of contact with the English when the Mayflower arrived. And it was a violent, disease-filled, and it involved kidnapping and enslavement When the pilgrims arrived, some of the Wampanoags already spoke English. Some of them had already been to Europe as emissaries, been to Europe and back. Some of the Wampanoags knew, personally knew, the leaders on the Mayflower. Now, there's no question that the Wampanoag leaders reached out to the English at Plymouth. There's no question they did that, reached out in a kind of friendly way because they wanted an alliance, an alliance with them. Because their people, the Wampanoags, had been decimated by an epidemic, and they saw the English as an opportunity to fend off their enemies, namely the Narragansett nation. And they believed, the Wampanoags believed that an alliance with the English meant that they could wipe out the Narragansetts. My guess is you've never seen that in a Thanksgiving pageant before. Right. 
The myth surrounding this holiday doesn't address the complex social political dynamics that existed between the various indigenous populations that were living here when the Europeans arrived. You know, th these, these were complex nations of their own right with their own storied histories and complex relationships with each other. They engaged in wars and alliances, just like nations in any other part of the world. I, I think we have a tendency to infantilize the native population here by saying, oh, they were just these simple peace-loving people who you know, lived at peace with each other in nature until we came along and corrupted them. No, they, they were human beings with complex societies that often mistreated each other the way complex societies always have. And into that complexity, into that world, the pilgrims, the European settlers found themselves. Again, not the stuff of Thanksgiving pageants. Neither is the fact that when the English relationship with the Wampanoags eventually inevitably deteriorated, it culminated in one of the most horrific uh, colonial wars on record called King Philip's War, where the Wampanoags were just nearly wiped out, just exterminated. So for many Native Americans, Thanksgiving is a day of mixed feelings, a day of mourning, maybe some celebration too, but this is a complex holiday for many of our neighbors of indigenous uh, background. It's more of a day of mourning, is my understanding, than that of celebration. And I, and I share this today as an example of what it means to decolonize our mythology, to decolonize our the stories we've inherited as predominantly white you know, Americans. To decolonize our mythology often means to decenter the voices and perspectives of the powerful and center instead, or lift up instead, the perspective and voices of the marginalized folks in our midst, of the oppressed. This is important because it's often the case that the powerful and victorious get to write history. We find many examples of this, specifically in the ancient Near East. Um, we learned that a certain empire was, they lost a major battle. And it's interesting how that is that story is not told by the defeated party, the defeated empire. It's just not told, it's not carried forward because it doesn't suit um, their agenda to pass on the history they desire. Powerful and victorious entities often get the right history and control the narrative and make themselves look heroic. This is the way it's always been. But by listening to the oppressed and the powerless instead, by listening to the vanquished, we usually get a more accurate or balanced understanding of, of history, reality, the complete story. And this is not just what it means to decolonize our mythology, but also our theology. And this is really what I want to get to today. Our mythology and theology are both about the stories that shape and inform our lives, our worldview, our understanding of reality and history. A good example of what it means to decolonize our theology today 
comes from uh, something Rain Wilson once said, you know, Dwight Schrute from The Office, an unlikely source of wisdom, I admit, but nevertheless, uh, this, this is a pretty good tweet from a few years ago that made its rounds on social media. He said this, the, the metamorphosis of Jesus Christ from being a humble servant of the abject poor to being a symbol that stands for gun rights, prosperity theology, limited government, and, and fierce nationalism is truly the strangest transformation in, in history. He's talking about the way Christianity has been colonized by the politics of the American right wing, basically. Many of us are familiar with that because we grew up in, we grew up in that and that colonized understanding. But that the problem is bigger than he thinks because the colonizing of Christianity with values that were obviously foreign to Jesus is not new or uniquely American, but actually something that started in the first century with the early church. And we find it on display throughout the New Testament in Paul's writings and in the epistles. And of course, in the book of Revelation, this means that the New Testament itself, I would argue, needs to be decolonized from imperialism and imperialist understandings of God. What do I mean? Well, throughout the New Testament, we find the meek and humble Jesus of Nazareth, this crucified peasant who rejected worldly power. He rejected worldly power and, and worldly thrones and rulership. He loved his enemies, we're told, even forgave and and prayed for his enemies while they were crucifying him. This same Jesus, we're told, I mean, this same Jesus is reimagined in the epistles and, and especially in the book of Revelation as a vengeful king who will return in power and glory you know, to, to smite his enemies and to settle the score to pay back. Venge he is a vengeful God. Paul says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. This, this is Jesus? This is the same Jesus, we're, we're told, yes? And he's coming not just to smite his enemies, but to cast them headlong into an eternal lake of fire with all of Satan and his angels. This is Jesus reimagined as Caesar, basically. The story of Jesus, the memory of Jesus, colonized with that of imperial power, ultimate power. The power of a brutal king and, and the emperors that ruled the ancient world. This is the story of Jesus colonized with that ancient, whatever, first century understanding of power and rulership. This was their experience of power and rulership. Makes sense. And, and it makes sense that the church reimagined Jesus this way, not just because it was the kind of power they were most familiar with, but because... In my opinion, it's because they were an oppressed people. Most of them were desperately poor, exploited by the rich and the elites. 
by the powerful. And to, and to boot, the, the early church was often persecuted. They, we know they were persecuted by the Romans for refusing to engage in emperor worship. And it makes sense that they imagine Jesus as, as this king of glory who will return in real power to liberate them, lay waste to their enemies once and for all. They believe Jesus was going to do to their enemies what their enemies had been doing to them forever. So this colonizing of Jesus' memory taking place in the New Testament and was this attempt to basically cast him as Caesar. Basically Caesar. Fast forward 250 years or so from the first century, and you find this, this idea of this imperial Christ fully realized in Constantine, who was then just General Constantine. The legend goes that at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, General Constantine had a vision where he saw in the sky the cross, or perhaps it was the Cairo, another Christian symbol from that time period. And he heard a voice, as the legend goes, conquer by this, you know, God, the Christian God telling him, you know. And so Constantine, as the legend goes, told his soldiers, affix to your shields the image, this Christian image, whether it be the cross or the Cairo. And lo and behold, they won. And, and Constantine, General Constantine, became emperor, and he converted to Christianity. Here we see for the first time, you know, imperial Christianity fully realized. Fully realized in how Christianity was, was completely colonized by this system, by such systems of power and human conceptions of power and greed and violence. But it all began centuries prior, I think, in the first century church. I'm convinced with their reimagining of Jesus as a God of power and might who will return to vanquish his and our enemies for all time at the end of history. That's where this really begins. And in a way, you know, again, you can't blame oppressed people for wanting that, for wanting to see God this way, a God who's even more powerful than Caesar. The, you know, king of kings, you know, Caesars of Caesar of Caesars, if you will. But again, that, that conception of God stands in stark contrast to the enemy-loving, crucified peasant who, who rejected worldly rulership and power, who rejected violence, who, re who rejected all of that. I mean, went out of his way to say no. I love how John Caputo puts it. What reigns in the reign of God what reigns in the reign of God is not power and victory as the world knows such things. This was the victory of a call for justice over the cruelty of the world. The, the victory of the insistence of a call over the existence of real, of, of a very real and unjust world. The weakness of God over the strength of the world. The cruelty of the world is not extinguished at the cross, but exposed. The cruelty of the world is not extinguished at the cross, but exposed, condemned for what it is. God's reign rises up from the ruins 
of the world in a glory that the world cannot comprehend. The way of the cross is not the way to glory and power, but the glory of the way. I love that last bit. The way of the cross is not the way to glory, but the glory of the way. The way of love, self-sacrifice, nonviolent resistance, enemy love. That's the power, the, the so-called power of the cross, the power of a weak God, weak in the world estimations of what's weak and powerful. The real problem with colonizing Jesus with worldly conceptions of power is that in the end, such colonizing always ends up serving oppressors more than the oppressed. Theologies of violence and power, even if they originate from among an oppressed people, almost always ends up backfiring and becoming appropriated by those in power and becoming one more way to justify power. There's no question that this understanding of God has led the church from the first century through the time of Constantine into the Middle Ages until now. There's no question that that understanding of God has been used to justify all kinds of violence and to conflate the power of the crucified God with the power of empire. Specifically in American history, going back to the pilgrims here, it led European Christians to seize and colonize this land 400 years ago and do horrible things to its native inhabitants while believing they were doing the work of God. There's no question that European Christians who settled this country were inspired by the Exodus story and saw themselves as a new Israel colonizing a new promised land which raises the question, is the Exodus story in the Old Testament also colonized with worldly conceptions of power at that time? I think the answer is absolutely yes. The Exodus story, I think, is colonized with ancient Near Eastern conceptions of power. It's, it is, you know, the God of the Exodus is colonized with, you know, conceptions ancient Near Eastern conceptions of warrior-like tribal deities. The power of the Pharaoh, the power of, of Egyptian imperialism. Egypt was the Rome of their day, you know, most powerful empire. God, the God of the Israelites, we're told, was stronger, more powerful than the Egyptian deities. So let's not pretend that the New Testament is the only part of the Bible that needs to be decolonized from worldly conceptions of power. The Old Testament is too. It needs to be decolonized too. And let's not forget that for many Native Americans, past and present, the Exodus story is not a story about a God of liberation who's on the side of the oppressed, but a God who's on the side of the colonizers. Remember the, the Exodus story. God supposedly tells the Israelites to march into this foreign nation, the, land, the promised land, the land of Canaan, displace, dispossess, and exterminate the native inhabitants, the Canaanites. If you're a Native American, you hear this story, God told you to go into another nation and exterminate and dispossess the native inhabitants? 
this is supposedly good news for me? This is the God I'm supposed to worship? This is God of colonization and genocide. We know this story. That's the exact same story the European Christian settlers of this country invoked. We have their journals. We know how they theologize the settling of this nation. They invoke the Exodus story, the Exodus myth, as a way of justifying their conquests. They believed they were Israel 2.0, escaping persecution and oppression in Europe, their Egypt, traversing a vast and treacherous wilderness, the North Atlantic, to arrive here, the land that God promised them, where he would make them into a city on a hill, a divine nation appointed for a divine age. And this is the same story that many Zionists invoke today to justify killing and displacing Palestinians. Modern Zionism is basically a reenactment of the Exodus story. God calling his chosen people to seize a chosen land, dispossess, displace, eradicate the native population. All for the glory of God. All of these stories are colonized by worldly conceptions of power and must be exposed as such. These are theologies of violence that stand in stark contrast to the God who welcomes strangers and refugees, the God who calls us not to oppress foreigners, who calls us to love our enemies, and who calls us to treat others the way we want to be treated. Those are very different understandings of God. And we find those understandings in both texts, both testaments. This isn't just a New Testament issue, but an Old Testament issue, because it's a human issue. It's not just a Christian issue or a Jewish issue. It's a human issue. So using the Bible to decolonize our theology is a dicey proposition. What, what parts of the Bible are we using to do that? And, and we can use certain parts of the Bible to do that. we got to be discerning. Is the Bible is a work of human hands, human minds. If we're, if we're not discerning, well, we're in trouble. Otherwise, I think decolonizing our theology can actually be thought of as an extra-biblical affair. We don't really need the Bible to decolonize our theology. We can do it on our own without it. Meaning we, we just need to look at the power dynamics of the day and the context in which we're looking at and decide that we're not going to use God, faith, Jesus, or the Bible to justify oppression of any means. We're not going to use theology to lend support to oppressors and oppressive systems. We're never going to use theology to lend support to violent and oppressive systems. We just make that choice and think about it. This is how we decolonize our mythology and our theology. We, we choose never to use theology to justify bloodshed and violence. This is what it means to decolonize our theology. And so as we shift towards receiving the Lord's Supper today, let us further meditate on this God who is revealed to us in 
the bread and the cup. A God who died for the cause of justice, for the cause of love, for the least of these. This God who laid his life down, his body broken here before us. And by receiving this, we are saying that we choose to embody this God of sacrificial love, this God of enemy love, this God who was crucified by his enemies and didn't, didn't return violence with violence. Let us meditate on this now. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Questions, comments, um, curious how this struck you today. And one of the things I wanted to touch on that I didn't, and then maybe this will stimulate a conversation, is decolonizing our theology is about more than just um, changing the way that we think of God in relationship to systems like, like imperial power. But what does it mean to decolonize our theology from patriarchy, from whiteness, from heteronormativity. There's all these different layers of the ways in which I think we can and, and should decolonize our theology from these, frankly, systems, principalities and powers, use a biblical term, that we grew up with, you know? Um, I think that's an interesting question. What does it mean to decolonize your theology of patriarchy, misogyny, whiteness, heteronormativity? How has that worked for you? What's been your experience with that? Um, how have you grown in those areas? I don't know. How has that changed the way that you've read the Bible? <laughs> Might be another good question. Yeah, Marsha. I don't think I ever did. <laughs> I think that we have a blanket over our heads by the people that we are raised in the neighborhoods. I, you just took the <laughs> and double shot all, a lot of things for me when you talk about real history, reality. I didn't know a lot of that you spoke about. Thanks, yeah, that's, that's good news. You've never heard this before, right? Yeah, it can be a lot to deal with. Yeah, Leanne and, and Dorian. Yeah, I think I philosophically have always felt this tension where I don't know if anyone else feels this. It's like looking at Jesus's ministry and his life on earth. It's like, yes, like peace always, violence, no. And then my husband's grandfather went to Germany to kill Nazis and was part of the reason why we won the war and the Nazis don't exist. And he went and he killed some of them and it haunted him the rest of his life. It's not like he was super excited about it, but 
And then just looking at the folks in Ukraine, like there was a lot of language after the Russian invasion where people were like, we just need peace. And it's like, stop, like Ukrainians are fighting for their lives. They're fighting to have their own country. Like, so it's this tension of like, peace always, never violence. And then it's like, well, what about Ukrainians killing Russians to keep their country? Also, what do we do as individuals if someone's trying to harm us or harm someone we love? Like violence never? Like, I don't, I, so I feel like there's like the indeed namaste jesus like like side and then there's like wait let's be practical sometimes violence maybe i don't know is it justified i I feel like that there's like this tension that i have mentally yeah there is a tension there um curious we've talked about this before anybody have a response to that um dorian and then max yeah I think uh I think I think I think we we uh we assume and we uh build these archetypes, right? For not just for, you know, an archetype for Christianity and how it like, you know, whether it's Protestant or Catholicism, right? Uh but I think, you know, it's important to keep in mind that just because these archetypes exist doesn't mean that there's so many differences and tensions in which in which we, even with those own communities or uh, you know peoples you know that it varies right and it, it's kind of like it, it's kind of like um, you know if you think about um, a minority group right it's being oppressed right not everybody's being oppressed in the same way right and so it's important to to value that everybody has a different journey and everybody has a different, you know, and to listen. I think that's the most important thing is to be able to, you know, I mean, for for Christians, for traditional, you know, fundamentalist Christians, not to be afraid of witchcraft or, you know, or 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 even, you know, uh, paganism, you know, things like this, where or, not paganism, but like, I mean, just, you know, to stop assuming that we know what it is, what it is we think we know about others or even just even what we think we know about all christians or even what we assume that we know about you know uh you know all liberals or you know and just keep an open mind and an open ear because everybody has a different journey and what what that does is i think it it allows us to grow as people and it allows us to understand that just because i had this archetype in mind that's not what's fueling everybody and that's not what's you know, and so living in the tension, living in what we don't know, and living that some pe- sometimes people have to, not have to, but sometimes people make a choice to kill others to stay alive themselves. Sometimes people, you know, mar- being marginalized communities might have to feel like they have to break the law in order to survive, right? Or maybe it's, you know, it's, it's, and it's not, I don't think it's necessarily justifying or being like, and that's, and like, that's okay, but it's it's tension. It's stuff that we all have to deal with and live with. And just yeah, it's complex, right? And just assuming that just because we read something or we learn about something that, oh, now we know everything about that, right? It's to continue to have an open mind and have an open ear and to listen to people's stories and live with them and live in their in the tension of the complexities of the world. I was just gonna say, so I um I come from uh, Mennonite and a Baptist roots. Um, so my family fled uh, Europe 
um, Prussia specifically, and were deeply pacifist community. And just like really briefly, the Anabaptist Mennonite movement was persecuted in Europe for being pacifist. So they were imprisoned and executed for not serving in the military. That happened here in the U.S. too. So many were imprisoned during World War One um, because they refused to serve. World War Two, same deal. Um, so I spent. I went to. I went to a uh, Mennonite undergrad and. I mean, the short answer <laughs> to the question and the tension is that people literally have spent hundreds, even thousands of years asking this question. Um, so there's not an easy answer to it um, in terms of what do we do with the tension between Jesus, the pacifist, the nonviolent activist. And, you know, I mean, some people, some Christians will say, oh, yeah, because he's coming back with a fiery sword. So he was only, only meant that for when he was here the first time. That doesn't apply anymore, which whatever that we can talk about that another time um but uh, for me really all i can speak out of i i think it's really helpful to remember that even that some of the most devout pacifists like maybe like dietrich bonhoeffer right um eventually comes to this position and using the same example that you cited right we have this this idea of what about the nazis first of all it did strike me nazis do still exist right which is a bummer but it's like it's kind of a reminder of like hey even after a world war and hundreds of thousands millions killed the ideas persist right it's, can you really kill an idea with violence so i'll set that aside too but with diedrich bonhoeffer getting back to that like he got to this point of saying hey i am actually going to participate in um, an assassination attempt on hitler it ultimately failed, obviously. He was sentenced to death and executed for doing that. Part of what he said at the time is that he wanted his act to be remembered as a sin. And that's just for him, right? He was a pacifist, but he made the decision to say, I know I'm not supposed to do this. I know I'm not supposed to kill others, but I am willing to take on the burden of sin in order to put an end to this evil. So in in a way, right, he act, the pacifism showed up as, hey, I know there are times in which we are so limited and our only our only solution might be some sort of violence. But I am willing to take that upon my own shoulders and sacrifice my own, you know, fill in the blank soul, life, right? He sacrificed his own life to do it while committing to the overall principle, right? The idea that it doesn't throw everything out. It doesn't mean that the philosophy itself is not something we should try to work towards, but that there all are these lines in which there isn't an easy solution or an easy answer. Um, but when it comes down to it, most, most about pacifists will say, I'm just taking that burden on myself and not projecting it onto others. Um, so that's that's on the personal level. I will also say too, if you take on the macro, um, as my my dear dear <laughs> um, black um, uh, Black Lives Matter leader uh, in Kansas that I uh, went to school with and is still one of my best friends, pushes me on, especially when I was more pacifist. <laughs> it's a very white European colonial mindset to put pacifism on others. And Dorian, you were mentioning this too, right? The idea that like. To, to say pacifism is correct and this is how Jesus was, so you have to follow it, it's different and has been used 
to silence, right? Um, silence the oppressed, to, to say to slaves, right? To say to colonized peoples, you are not allowed to resist because Jesus is peaceful and, and, and nonviolent. So when you resist and when you're violent, you are sinning. It says nothing of this of the violence of those in power, right? It says nothing of the violence in the systems they create. It says nothing of the violence, right, of the colonizing that they are committing. I would I would argue that is all violence. Um, but it's been it's been used as a convenient tool to keep power and to push down those without power. So I think when we talk about um, pacifism, we talk about how do we be peaceful in light of Jesus' message. Um, I think it's important, and as you did, Luan, important to keep it as sort of like a personal, like, hey, it might look different for everybody, right? And so the 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 best question we can answer is, like, what does that look like for me? And again, not an easy answer, but but hopefully some like helpful framing there. Yeah, I realized that me getting up here and preaching this message this Sunday. Um, sounds like moralizing, and you're right to respond to it that way. Being like, so this is like, Aaron, you're getting up there saying that you know, Jesus was completely against any form of um, violent resistance. Well, I, I I feel like even if he was the Jesus of history, like doesn't necessarily mean that we should impose that ethic on every single context. You know what I mean? And we have to resist moralizing and it's hard for me to always nuance what I'm saying. This is why we have discussion <laughs> because it's hard for me, especially when I'm being very passionate and emphatic as I was today to offer the nuance. And I'm glad we're able to do that here. And it's, I've heard, I've read because Max has been very helpful in this over the years. I've used Max as a resource. I'm like, can you send me non like literature on nonviolent uh, scholars? And one of the things that I've read is it's like, Adhering to a, a doctrine of a doctrine, a, a position of nonviolence doesn't necessarily mean that you don't engage in acts of physical force. Nonviolence is, is about ultimately ending violent, unjust forms of violence, breaking the back of unjust forms of violence. And sometimes you, know, you could imagine a circumstance, you know, if somebody came in, God forbid, um, you know, somebody came in here and started doing violent things. Oh, what would be the ethical choice? Well, we're nonviolent, so we're not going to, you know, harm you in any way or try to tackle you or wrestle whatever weapon you have away from you, and because we might end up hurting you. And the no, it's ridiculous. You know, the nonviolent act there is to stop the violence by any means. That's nonviolent in that sense. In the same way, you know, as Christians, we're taught, you know, thou shall not lie, right? And I'm gonna, I, I hate. <laughs> invoking the, the, you know, going back to the Nazis, but the idea if you were harboring Jews in your house in, in you know, 1940 France, and you have the Gestapo at your front door asking you, are you harboring Jews in your house? And you are, truth-telling in that circumstance, truth-telling in that circumstance is to lie to the Nazis, to protect the lives of the innocent. That's truth-telling. Yeah, you're lying, but you're, you see, you see the difference? You're truth-telling because you're adhering to a higher ideal. Nonviolence, I think, is about an ideal of breaking systems of violence. And quite often, the only way to do that, to be, to be honest, violence begets violence. And so there's we have to keep in mind and be very 
uh, discerning and, and and careful when we talk about violence that the, if we're if we're advocating for violence that we're not actually spurring on the violence by doing so. Does that make sense? Like, and those aren't Max. You're right. It's extremely complex and nuanced situations, especially if you are an oppressed community. Does a violent reaction from an oppressed community spur on systems of hatred and violence? I don't know. And the contexts are different. And the answers are different. Martin Luther King Jr. believed in nonviolent resistance because he believed that, you know, and he had a right to say this as a member of Black community, that he believed a violent civil rights up, uprising was not the best way to go, that it would spur on violence and, and instigate white more white violence against the Black community. Malcolm had a different perspective on it, and Malcolm and King respected each other. I don't, you know, these, these situations are extremely complex, and I really appreciate you bringing this up, Leanne, um, because my talk was very, it sounded very moralizing in some ways, but it's more nuanced than that. But I will say that any attempt, well, no, see, I can't say that. Uh, I was going to say, is there any attempt to use theology to justify bloodshed? I mean, liberation theology in the 1960s, liberation theology was this movement that came out of South America and, and the oppressed people, the native inhabitants of South America against the colonial overlords. And liberation theology was this idea brought forward by the Catholic Church there and some priests that absolutely, they would receive communion on a, at mass and then literally load their weapons in the sanctuary and go out and wage war against the landlords and the colonizers. Believe, not having any kind of uh, cognitive dissonance between mass and then lock and load. But, you know, that's that was liberation theology in South America in the 1960s, and it was embodied. Liberation theology was embodied here in the United States, specifically in the civil rights movement by Dr. King, James Cone, um, in different ways. But these are. It's extremely complex, and I didn't get into that complexity. But anyway, I'm talking too much. Anybody want to speak to this or react to this? Have any other thoughts? Okay, Marsha, yeah. And Aaron, as you were talking about that, I just wanted to, um, you reminded me as you were talking about the civil rights movement uh, and how violence was approached differently there. I'm reminded that a lot of this conversation has been just about whether individuals or nations or entities should commit acts of violence, but there's a whole bigger picture about how violence is used to overthrow power. And I was reminded of that specifically with um, how you were talking about uh, MLK. Um, and while he was very much nonviolent um, himself and what he thought people should, how people should resist, he utilized violence as much as anybody else. You know, like the march in Selma was specifically orchestrated to provoke violence. You know, the, the power of watching Black children get sprayed with fire hoses and, and police dogs let go was, was enough to have white people across America turn and join in with a minority voice and so um yeah not that it's it's not a just a different thought that there is there is a place for violence even if we don't want to 
perpetuate acts of violence. Like it's, it's so unbelievably complicated. And I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in those places, you know, and being a part of a community like that. It's like, we're going to get hurt and beat and punished so that we can be on white TV cameras. Um, so white people can give a shit. Um, it's crazy. Uh, but it's just, I didn't think about it until that moment uh, of how complex our conversation about violence even is. I, I got pregnant at the beginning of the Vietnam War and my husband could have been drafted. And I had nightmares of my baby that I hadn't had snatched from me, thrown up in the air, and a soldier with a bayonet was going to spear it to death. And that was a horrible nightmare I had over and over. And it's hard to interpret what side you want to be on. Do you want to end up grabbing your own bayonet and killing the soldier before he killed your unborn or your newborn? It Life is very difficult in terms of which side you're on. Other reactions, thoughts? Yeah, Jason. So um, obviously it's like a much fraught topic. It's hard to pick out exactly where to get in and get the right context. But I, you know, one thing I think about when I think about systemic violence or you know perpetuated systems of violence that go on and on and on um, and how it relates back to what we're taught as Christians is you, you know, a lot of times, especially in the modern era where there's so much actual technology and wealth and there's really is, in many ways, I mean, in the, in the moderate, you know, kind of what we think of as the first world, there's really is enough to go around. So a lot of times, I think, from the Christian perspective, the biggest change that, you know, um, to getting to nonviolence is, is, is about some degree of sacrifice, usually uh, ego, you know, even if it's the collective ego, of a people or a type of people that things aren't going to be this vision that you thought it was going to be and that it, you know depending on your faith tradition we're expected to you know we've been given this amazing example of sacrifice you know and we're not being asked to like have nails put through our wrists or anything like that we're being asked to maybe like have to share something you know have to share some resource or Right. Well, or you you know it gets hard. You know, you might. I mean, we see like you might have to give up some kind of idea of a the future world you thought for yourself and your children, right? And we see that in things like replacement theory, right? It's the the letting go of this idea of a ethno state, you know, or you know, and and if you have enough people who believe in it and are and identify with it and their egos are connected to it, then it starts. You know, you can that can be turned into violence, right? And we not just in America. You know, so it's uh, that, that, that that's what I have to say. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
No, you're right. And, and, I, and I think Jesus's example and Jesus's words should be more of something that, that haunts us and disturbs us and that informs the way that we live in the world rather than as this kind of rule book of ethics that, you know, you just superimpose these words upon every circumstance. No, it's meant to, again, haunt us, disturb us, call us into carefully considering, you know, the just the justness of the systems we're participating in and asking ourselves deeper questions about it. That's at least how it works for me. Um, we can over-moralize and we ironically can do kind of, you know, this kind of religious law-based approach, which is, I think is antithetical to what Jesus was even trying to do. But um, anyway, that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. All right, 1132. Thanks for a great discussion. Let us conclude our our formal time together with our benediction. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thank you for being here, and happy Thanksgiving. Safe travels. Thank you.